Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Every six months or so, the debate about whether the U.S. should sell 50 to 100-year bonds emerges. And once again, we have that battle raging. Uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin weighing in and saying that it seemed really uh, like a logical thing to do for the U.S. to sell ultra-long-dated bonds in the face of just how low interest rates have gone. And his advisors are looking into it and are expected to recommend against it. But, Paul, it really raises this question, you know, again and again, what is the holdup if the borrowing costs are so low? And if the holdup is that compelling, why do we have this debate every six months? Joining us now to discuss, Marcus Ashworth, columnist covering European markets as well as bond markets globally uh, for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, joining us from London. So, Marcus, let's just start with why did Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin revive this debate that seems to sort of bubble up every six months or so? Because he was told to. Uh, <laughs> By who? Behind you, behind you, behind the curtain. Who knows? Um, the great thing is, is that the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee, the key word there being advisory, um, keeps on trying to push this back. Because, look, and I've been a U.S. Treasury bond, bond dealer, and it's difficult enough trying to trade 30 years. Can you imagine trying to trade 100 years or even stripped 100 years? All of a sudden, someone comes along, lifts you out of 500 million. You have no hope of getting that back until you're paying five points higher. It's a disaster to try and manage this type of risk from a dealer market maker point of view. They know also that if, if, a, if a client buys this stuff, they're going to lock it away, not come back for, what, 100 years. So, you know, it, it, it kills liquidity. It kills uh, their sense of controlling risk. It can, of course, create a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, look, to make this sort of sector work, you'd have to have 100-year futures. Uh, and, and options and a whole raft of other stuff. It, it could be great. It could really stretch the way that, that people trade risk and, and trade uh, duration and convexity, and, and it could do all sorts of things. But the U.S. Treasury has to be committed to it for a longer-term, clear plan. The trouble is, is that Trump could be out of office in, in, in a little over a year's time, and a new Treasury secretary could do the opposite. So that's what scares people, because you know, once you go down this route, you've got to stay committed to it, and there has to be a rational reason for it. Now, don't get me wrong, yields are incredibly low. It makes sense for as far as the government's concerned, but you have to have your client base and pensions funds with you. And though they may be in Europe and certainly in the UK because of actuarial and, and different reasons, there's less demand and, and requirement in the US because you already have strict 30 years, which give you a duration of, funny enough, exactly 30 years, which is equivalent to a 50-year regular bond. So there's less real need for it, but still this is a government intent on doing different things. So, uh, Marcus, are there other developed markets that have longer dated bonds, 50, 100 years, and can we take anything away from those? Sure. Uh, okay, look, so in Europe, uh, Germany doesn't go over 30 years. Um, we, we're starting to see other countries around it uh, go there. So we know Austria's done a 100-year bond. Uh, Italy's done a 50-year bond, tapped it again. Um, France has done 50 years. UK goes out as far as, as 50 years. Sweden's about to think, look at possibly doing 100 years. Ireland and Belgium have just done private placements the last couple of years in 100 years. But they're sort of like one-offs. So they really only can look at maybe Italy to a certain degree, UK definitely, and possibly France, of having any form of liquidity 
further out. But it's becoming more and more popular because there is a huge, huge hunt for yield in Europe, much more extreme than you see in the, in your, in the U.S. And don't well, get me wrong, it's, it's definitely there. But. but Marcus, I mean, how much is the obstacle for the U.S., the fact that U.S. rates are such an important benchmark and that, you know, a shift exactly. in the whole curve creates a much more challenging situation than, say, in some of these nations in Europe that where there's more of a composite type rate uh, that is sort of the benchmark for a lot of other debt. In other words, it won't matter as much to the whole structure of, of a huge debt market if they issue longer dated debt as it would in the U.S. Lisa, you've clearly been doing bonds and fixes in quite some while. Spot on. Exactly right. And that is, that is the, the nub of the argument. I couldn't put it better. You know, look, it does, who cares if Ireland does it or think good for them? Austria, likewise. There's a reason why Germany hasn't done it, perhaps, in, in, in Europe. They don't really need the money and they'd rather not have the, the, the potential sort of illiquidity out there. And this is, a, this is exactly the point. If you go out to 100 years, you've got to be convinced it's, it's, it's a worthwhile thing, there is huge demand for it, and it's going to be something that hangs around, and you're going to be able to issue them quarterly you know, for decent amounts of money, and you're going to be able to create a futures market, and blah, blah, blah. You are the world's interest rate benchmark. You, you mess with that at your peril. You have a fantastic 30-year liquid um, bond, which has strips off it, which has tips off it. It's everything works perfectly. Why mess with something which is perfection uh, in liquidity terms? And, and, you know, for what benefit? Yeah, okay, I get the point that it, it's locking in very low rates for a long, very long while. But, you know, right. 30 years, not, not enough here. All right. So my, my, my takeaway, Lisa, is Marcus is not a big fan of the 1500 years. Or it just bond. seems <laughs> it as unlikely. <laughs> unlikely. I never want to trade it. I would never want to be, you know, please make me a, make me a market in 100 million. Ah! You know. <laughs> Marcus Ashford, thank you so much for joining us. Marcus is the columnist covering European markets for Bloomberg Opinion uh, from London. You can read more on this and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion uh, at Bloomberg.com slash opinion and on the terminal by typing O-P-I-N-Go. Well, as investors come back next week from the long holiday weekend, they're going to take a look at their portfolios and they're going to say, hey, we're 10 plus years into this economic cycle. Trade uncertainty is out there weighing on my portfolio, but I've got a dovish Fed. What should I do? Uh, maybe to get some answers, we welcome our next guest, Deepak Puri, Chief Investment Officer for the Americas for Deutsche Bank Wealth Management. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Deepak, thanks so much for, for joining us. So again, we you kind of look at the S&P and it's kind of flat over the last 12 months. We've had a great rally this year. But again, if you look at it over the trailing 12 months, kind of flat. What are you telling the Deutsche Bank Wealth investors uh, how they should be positioned their portfolio right now? Great. Uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, I think a couple of things. A, what we have seen over the last one year, especially year to date, is primarily driven by what we would call a PE expansion. You know, it's not really driven by corporate earnings going up. Uh, so keep that in mind as you position yourself for the next uh, few quarters. Um, having said that, I think there are certain things for the next couple of months that makes us take a little bit of a cautious stance. Uh, you know, you look at the trade war that's going on, even though there was an olive branch yesterday from the Chinese, we feel this is a, 
you know, protracted uh, sort of a give and take, one step forward, two steps back kind of situation. And we really don't expect a comprehensive trade deal anytime soon. Uh, on top of that, the next couple of quarters, the third quarter is going to be by far the, the worst quarter for this calendar year for the earnings season. And then the fourth quarter could be the uh, low water mark for the GDP. So the next couple of quarters are definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, having said that, I think uh, longer term, uh, you know, things look much better for equities, especially we haven't seen a top. You know, when you look at how the equity markets end, they usually end up with a bang. Uh, you know, last 12 months, as you just pointed out, has been relatively flattish. So this is not really a, a very uh, top-heavy kind of an equity market. We still see legs in this market. So our 12-month forecast remains uh, around 3,000. But that is primarily driven by a little bit better earnings than a PE expansion that we have seen more recently. One counterpoint is that a lot of the bearishness that you talk about has been baked into valuations currently, and we've seen a sell-off that really has stemmed from the recognition of some of those pessimistic kind of developments that you were talking about. Bank of America came out this morning and recommends buying stocks right now because they say that the bearishness has gotten so extreme uh, that it makes sense. What do you say to that? I wouldn't say that the bearishness is to an extreme. I think there's, uh, you know, and you have to take into account what the other asset classes are telling you or signaling. So I think the bearishness is really at an extreme when you look at the fixed income markets. You know, they are really highlighting a really pessimistic scenario for, the, for inflation, for growth, and, and so forth. On the equity market side, you know, currently you're trading at 17, 18 times multiple, which is, to my mind, is pretty much where it should be. Um, you know, when you look at uh, how to assign a PE multiple on markets, you have to look at both what I would call structural forces at play and then the cyclical trend. The cyclical trend is what we call earnings curve. You know, there's a lot of talk about yield curves and yield curve inversion, but I see a lot less focus on earnings curve, which is simply put, next 12-month earnings subtracting the trailing 12-month earnings. And what's the trajectory for that earnings curve? And that still is positive. So that's a I think to an extent a positive take on the PE. On the other side, when you look at the um, more structural forces at work, that could be a little bit of a, a downside. Um, so that is, you know, you're looking at inflation prognosis and so forth. So overall, that 17 and a half multiple seems reasonably fair to us, and that's what we are saying that uh, for the next one month it stays where it's at. Um, I would be recommending a little bit of an underweight position to your neutral at this stage, given the next couple of quarters could be a little bit shaky, as I said earlier. So, uh, you know, if you have a 50% neutral allocation to equity, maybe this is the time you take some profits off the table, markets are up 15 16%, and uh, reallocate or keep some extra money in, in cash. So in your scenario, in your uh, outlook for the markets, how aggressive do you think the Fed is going to be and how aggressive do you think they need to be to kind of support your outlook? So I think there is a little bit of a disconnect in terms of what the Fed futures market is saying and what the, the reality is. You know, you look at the numbers, especially from the consumers coming in yesterday, today. You know, yesterday's the revision on the GDP side. You know, you see the consumer spending number at 4.7, multi-year high. This morning, we saw the core PCE number, you know, inching a little bit upwards. I think the Fed uh, has, has to act 
uh, given the, the Jackson Hole speech and also the preemptive insurance rate cut that they started the, the July meeting with. Uh, so they probably go for a cut here in, in September meeting. But after that, I think the incoming data dictates. And, uh, you know, our view is two rate cuts for the next 12 months, which is a little bit, uh, you know, not as aggressive as what the street is expecting. And primarily our take is dependent on the fact that we see consumer in a much better health uh, than what the, the Fed is looking at. I think the Fed is very myopically looking at, and it's maybe not as myopic, but they're really concerned about the overseas market. You know, what's the other central banks doing, the manufacturing slump in the global economy, and that's creating some level of anxiety. On top of that, the trade war that has the potential of really, you know, having a second or third derivative effect that no one really has the policy measures to counteract. So I think that's really where the Fed comes into play. But we still think of this as a sort of an insurance policy cut phase, so two to three rate cuts overall, similar to 1995-98, and not really start off an easing cycle, which would be 2001-2002 or 2008. Deepak Puri, thank you so much for being with us. Deepak Puri is Chief Investment Officer for the Americas at Deutsche Bank Wealth Management, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios, uh, talking about a bit of cautiousness heading into the next few months. Right now, we're seeing a bit of cautiousness clawing back some of the earlier gains that we saw in U.S. equities. NASDAQ up now just four basis points, uh, so almost flat on the day after starting solidly in the green. We are seeing bond yields uh, coming off their earlier highs as well. It seems like people getting a little more skeptical ahead of trade talks this weekend. Art investing, should it be a part of your portfolio? Our next guest thinks maybe it should be. Dr. Harvey Manis, he is an art collector board member of the namesake and the namesake of the Manus Art and Education Center at the Nassau County Museum of Art. Uh, Dr. Manus, thanks so much for joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So again, I, we've heard about it from time to like when I think about investing in art, I think about these big hedge fund managers going out and spending, you know, gajillions of dollars on art. Do you think it should be part of maybe the average investor's portfolio? Well, thank you for inviting me. And uh, I think it's a good, a good investment. As a matter of fact, the, the Wall Street Journal uh, came out a couple of months ago uh, stating that art was the best investment for 2018. Uh, artwork was up 10.6%, uh, while the S&P was down 5.1%. And through the years, art has been uh, quite a good investment. I've been collecting for over 40 years, and I've, I've purchased pieces that were let's say 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, and they've increased 20 and 30 fold. And during uh, a good times, people have money and they can, they can buy art. And, and if you look at the graph of, of prices of art, it continues to rise. Very rarely does it go down. All right, well, let, let's start with how you got into this in the first place. You're an orthopedic surgeon by day. Art investor by night, and then perhaps if you uh, have a few, then you're back at your carpentry uh, roots. So, how did you get into this sort of art investing world? Well, I always uh, love art. As a, as a child, I would uh, my father would take me to the Brooklyn Museum, and uh, I, I lived in a kind of a rough area, a rough neighborhood, 
it was Crown Heights, and uh, and my friends were not interested in museums. Nobody around there was interested in museums, except when my father would take me. I loved looking around at the uh, old masters and the impressionists and 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 the different paintings. I just loved art. And uh, when I went to college, I, I was a pre-med major, but I actually majored in art history. So I took a lot of art history classes. Uh, then when I uh, finished medical school and I, I was able to uh, save a few shekels, uh, I started buying art. So how would you suggest that someone get started in the art business and the kind of the art investing in art? Okay, that's a very good question. There are many ways to buy art. You can buy art at the auctions. You can buy at galleries, art fairs. You can buy online. Now, buying online is, is a very good uh, venue. Uh, and you don't have to spend a lot of money. Uh, of course, you can spend hundreds of millions like some of the Matisse and Picassos. And I, I actually couldn't. Excuse me? <laughs> I, I couldn't. Was that you who no, bought you. that to Da Vinci? You, you um, look like that person. Uh, yeah. A little bit. Uh, I just need to look wall? back at my records. <laughs> anyway, carry on. So you can buy a, a lithograph. A lithograph, let's say from Chagall or Picasso, famous artist that I, yeah, I just happened to mention, could be between 1000 and 100000 so if you have a, you know, just a few thousand dollars to invest, buy a litho from one of the famous artists. Now, uh, there are certain parts of, uh, and areas of art that go up uh, faster than other areas. So we have the old masters that increase in value maybe four or 5% a year. We have the modern artists like Picasso and, uh, and Leger and Dali that increase in value, I don't know, six, seven, 8% per year. And then you have the contemporary. The contemporary market is hot as, am I allowed to say hell? Yeah, sure, radio? go ahead. I can say that. <laughs> it's really hot. And we have artists like Damien Hurst and uh, Jeff Koons, and especially, well, Warhol, Lichtenstein, the pop artists are, are, are still very hot. But the graffiti artists are doing amazingly well. Artists like Basquiat, Keith Haring, uh, Kenny Scharf, uh, and now a fella called Cause, K-A-W-S, they're so hot, uh, you buy a piece uh, now, and, and within a year or two, it, they will definitely increase in value. So if you, if it, let's say it's not one of the top names. How do you determine whether something's good? Also, good question. First of all, you're gonna, this is a collection, and you have to really like what you buy. You, you just can't buy because you think it's an investment. You, you're gonna have to hold on to these pieces for a while. It's not a flip type of thing, let's say like real estate or, or stocks. You have to hold on to it so you're gonna live with it. So you, you, you have to find a piece that you really like, uh, the color, the design, whatever, a piece that you like. Then, and then as far as, I'm sorry, what, what, what I, I how do you know, how, how do you know whether it's good? Cause I mean, oh, I'm just thinking, know? I'm just thinking about, you know. You ask, <laughs> you ask the dealer, you, you ask the auction house, you get prices, you do due diligence. You do your due diligence. Go online, put the artist name in. Let's say the artist is John Smith. Put it online and you'll see the prices uh, if he sold in, in galleries and auctions. But if, you, if you're talking about an up and coming artist that has not had any uh, sales at auctions or, 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 or major galleries, then it's difficult. Then it's a crapshoot. But I try to buy, like stocks, I try to buy blue chip artists and, uh, and, and, and occasionally I'll buy a, like an over the, uh, what do you, what do they call us? The pink sheets. Occasionally I'll buy an artist like on a pink sheet, but that's, then you're taking a risk. So, all right. How about for someone like me with little to absolutely no experience, 
how do I spot fakes or isn't is that a risk that I have to really deal with something that's just you know it's it's not it's a fake it's not authentic <laughs> well Thomas Hoving uh, the director of the um, modern art museum uh, said that 40% of the art in museums are fake wow so it's very hard to really stay away from fakes but what you need is provenance you, you, you buy a piece and you need the papers from the gallery from the auction uh, provenance that this is a, an authentic piece where is the bid coming from that keeps prices continually marching higher? Is there sort of the, the Chinese buyer that's been coming in or the European buyer, or is it, you know, everywhere and just the more that it becomes sort of, uh, you know, popularized online, et cetera, the more everything is worth? Well, you, you have people who buy art who are very wealthy and, and it's kind of a prestige type of thing. Uh, so that, that pushes the prices up as well. But there are more museums opening up every year. Uh, more people are educated. More people are going to museums every year. And people want to, you know, have art in their, in their life. It's beautiful to be surrounded by, you know, wonderful pieces of art. Besides the fact that it's a very good investment. So if I go to an auction, just real quickly, what do I need to know? Do I just wave my little paddle when I like something? <laughs> <laughs> well, don't, yeah, I guess. No. You, you, <laughs> That's how I see the people. The paddle's I, not I so little. It's a big paddle. Okay. okay. But uh, Got to work that, out for that. <laughs> you look, you, before you bid, you have to you look up the artist. And the auction uh, catalog will have a, a low estimate and a high estimate. So... They, are, they do a lot of the due diligence for you. Uh, let's say a piece is uh, estimated between ten and 20,000. So, you know, you, you look it up and, and, and online and see if this is, uh, you know, within your price range and, and you, you, th you see if it's, you think it's fair. And you could call the auction or the gallery and ask for previous prices and ask them how they came up with this particular uh, estimate. Dr. Harvey Manis, thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, one more thing. What? My book, Collecting oh, we're Art. We're going to get there. Don't worry. Dr. Harvey Manis is an art collector, a board member, and the namesake of the Manis Art and Education Center at the Nassau County Museum of Art. And he has a book, Collecting Art for Pleasure and <laughs> Profit, that he is holding up. And uh, you can find it on Amazon and others. Hurricane Dorian continues to bear down on the state of Florida, expected to make landfall perhaps uh, Monday of next week. The question really is, where will it uh, make landfall? Uh, to help us get the latest, we welcome Matthew Palazzola, senior analyst covering property and casualty insurance for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Brian Sullivan, energy and commodities reporter for Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1061 studio in Boston. Brian, let's start with you. Can you just give us the latest on what we know about the storm? So the storm is um, on the verge of becoming a Category 3, which will make it a major hurricane, and it is potentially going to be a Category 4 when it finally gets to the Florida coast um, late Monday, early Tuesday. Uh, right now, the current thinking is that it'll be somewhere between Fort Lauderdale and Port Lucie in Florida's um, southeast coast. So, Matthew, uh, given the fact that you focus on insurance companies and that they're expected to have potentially billions of dollars of losses uh, with this hurricane, I'm wondering where do you see which companies are going to be most affected? Which What are you watching? Sure. So the market share 
of homeowners insurance in uh, Florida is mostly dominated by smaller regional companies, large mutual non-public insurance companies, and the state-run insurance company. So the large national companies like AIG, Chubb, um, Allstate, Progressive, they will have exposure, but they're kind of in the bottom half of that top 10 of market share. Not only that, but they're pretty significantly protected by reinsurance. So in the event of a really, really large storm, it's probably the smaller regional companies who are most uh, in jeopardy. So, Brian, I guess the question is, if it comes across as it makes landfalls a Category 4, obviously major, major storm. I know one of the things I've been reading about and hearing about this storm is kind of the, the speed at which the storm is moving, i.e. it's not going very fast. So that suggests that there could be some significant damage. What, what are you hearing? Um, yeah, so there's two things that are going to happen. One is it's going to come ashore and you're going to have that that initial burst of really intense winds in a small area plus the storm surge and that's going to cause you most of your damage right along the coast. But as you point out, then it's going to stall out and it's going to sit over Florida for maybe a couple of days. And this is a sim- situation similar but not exactly the same as what happened in Texas with Harvey where it just came out and it just wrung itself out. So. Um, I've been watching the rainfall totals just keep going up, and right now we're in the the 6 to 15-inch range. This is really interesting to me from an insurance point of view, uh, Matt, because the more rain there is, the more relief there probably is at some of these insurance companies, right? Because isn't flood insurance covered by the government and not necessarily their purview? Isn't that correct? That is true. So the federal government uh, basically backstops most of the private flood insurance. There is commercial flood insurance, so you could see private companies uh, see some of those losses. But uh, for the most part, a lot of flood uh, doesn't impact these companies. But one thing that I find really interesting, so there were some uh, estimates of $53 billion for mm-hmm. the potential losses for this storm. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? That, that's the insured values of where it was aiming towards. Well, but so, so what I'm struggling to understand is just in a larger context, these slow-moving storms seem to be increasingly common. Mm-hmm. So how do insurance companies change their calculus as this increasingly happens? I mean, basically, are are insurance premiums going up dramatically as each storm happens? I'd probably say not not as each storm happens, but certainly over time, insurers are definitely reacting to higher catastrophe-prone areas like California and wildfire and Florida with hurricanes. So not only are they pulling back capacity, but they're uh, buying more protection for these areas as well. So, Brian, I, yeah, I know you cover uh, commodities uh, for Bloomberg News. What's been the projected impact on some of the uh, citrus and other, uh, you know, kind of produce and, and so on for the state of Florida? Um, it, c- it could get very bad um, in that situation, especially if um, the storm kind of drags its way northward up the peninsula, um, you know, the, the area where it's going to come in and make landfall is not necessarily a, a heavy um, citrus producer, but uh, that's further north up the peninsula. And as, as the storm goes up there and you get these flooding rains, that, that is, um, it's going to add up. Brian, since you cover the weather so well, and I love reading your stories because I'm always interested in what's going to be happening, how much more frequently are we seeing these big, slow-moving storms that just sort of dump a lot of rain and create a whole host of problems? Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion back and forth about that with um, people who have studied climate change, for instance, are saying that these things are becoming more common because the jet stream itself is getting stuck. And in Dorian's situation, what we're going to have here is two very large high-pressure systems, one over the Western Atlantic and one over the um, uh, Great Plains in the United States. 
And because hurricanes don't move under their own power, these two two monsters basically are going to pin Dorian down, and that's what's going to create it and make it such a slow mover. Um, and like I said, some people point to climate change as saying that you know these big high pressure systems are getting stuck more often because of um, the problems related with that. So, Matthew, you mentioned earlier uh, the reinsurance. That's one of the many areas of insurance I don't understand. Um, explain to us kind of how the reinsurance market works and kind of how that might, uh, how they might be affected here in Florida. Sure. So it's insurance for insurance companies. So, like, let's say you're Allstate and you write a lot of homeowners insurance in this in Florida. You might say uh, you go to a reinsurance company. Say if we have losses over one billion dollars, you take a certain percentage of that reinsurance company. So. It's increasingly looking like this storm is probably going to be worse than last year's uh, Hurricane Michael in terms of insured losses, maybe closer to Irma in 2017. So when you start to get into those like 20, 30, 40 billion dollar storm losses, uh, it starts to go through the uh, reinsurance coverage of companies. So, Brian, how would you rank this season that we have coming up in terms of how active the hurricanes are going to be? How are people sort of talking about it versus previous years? So we're... Right now, we're entering the most active period of, of uh, the hurricane season, and that typically happens around this time of year, like, say, from August 20th to October 1st. So we're just getting going. Um, there's two more potential storms out in the Atlantic following this one, and they may take a similar track. So, you know, we could be back here in a week or two weeks talking again about Florida taking a hit. I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Um, the early part of the season was kind of slow, but you can't really – judge the rest of the season by what happens in the early part of the season. So we could be in for a very active period here. Well, and we wish the best to everybody who is in the regions that are squarely in the target of Hurricane Dorian. Uh, Matt Palazzilla, thank you so much for being with us. Brian Sullivan, uh, thank you as well, both of them for Bloomberg uh, covering from the insurance side as well as the weather and commodity side, what we can be expecting. Definitely uh, the human aspect is important. Honestly, Paul, though, the, I, I'm actually expecting the debate to emerge once again about the U.S. government's program to ensure against uh, flood damage because right. it's not a, they don't have enough money to make it sustainable given the payouts that we've seen in recent years. And so there's going to be a big question of what you do with this program. And it always sort of strikes me as, you know, the bulk of the of the damage gets caused by flooding. Right. And so then it ends up squarely in the government's hands. Very interesting. We'll, I'm sure, be talking more about that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.